The sermon, pass, the sermon passage for this morning is 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10 on page 1022 in the Blue Bible in front of you. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, let's imagine for a moment there are three children up on stage. Uh, You don't know these three children, but you do know that each one of them uh, has one of our church's pastors for a father. So you know one of them is Mike and Heidi Jones's child. You know one of them is Seth and Jill Wachtel's child. You know one is Karen's and my child. And so let's take a look at these three imaginary kids up on stage. One of them is wearing a Seattle Seahawks hat and a Liverpool jersey. They seem to have a proficiency for speaking Spanish and a kind of permanent British scowl on their face. (laughs) One of them is wearing an NC State shirt, a Braves hat, and uses y'all as the second person plural pronoun. One of them's wearing a Philadelphia Eagles hat and a hoodie from a 14K mountain in Colorado. This child seems to have more tattoos than most other children. Okay, how are you going to figure out which kid goes with which family? Well, if you know Mike and Heidi, if you know Seth and Jill, if you know Karen and me, it's obvious, right? We're all laughing. But if you don't know us, if you're a visitor with us this morning, or you don't have any way to know that Mike is from Liverpool and Heidi's from Washington and Jill and Seth both went to NC State and that Karen's from Colorado and I'm from Philadelphia, then you probably wouldn't have any way to discern which child goes with which family, just from their behavior and appearance. That's the reality that underlies our passage for this morning that Dave just read for us from the New Testament letter of 1 John. If you remember, that letter was most likely written by the Apostle John, so one of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. Most scholars date the letter to about 90 or so AD, so about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the congregation to which John is writing had been through something of a crisis. The church had been infiltrated by false teachers, people who claimed to have some sort of extra secret knowledge that the Christians there needed. These false teachers claimed to be Christians. They claimed to speak for God, but there were problems. They were not concerned to do the things that God said. They disregarded his commandments. 
They claimed to have achieved some sort of sinless perfection. They denied that the Lord Jesus had really come in the flesh as a man. They didn't show love to others in the congregation, but were factious and contentious. And while that's really bad enough, the the real problem was that these wicked people, the thing that was really damaging was that these false teachers claimed that they were the real followers of Christ. They claimed that they represented the true faith, that they should not only be accepted in the church, but actually emulated and followed. And so there had been a split. Some people in the church had embraced these false teachers. Others remained faithful to the message that they had heard from the beginning from the apostle. And so the false teachers and their followers had left the church, leaving behind a congregation that was wounded and confused. How could these people who claimed to be Christians, how could they have beliefs and practices that were so far off the mark? Right? It's like seeing a Wachtel kid wearing a UNC t-shirt, a Jones kid in an Everton jersey, a McKinley kid in a Cowboys hat. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Their claim to belong to a certain family and their actions and lifestyle just didn't match up. And so into that mess... John has instructions for the church about how to tell whether or not someone really represents Christ, whether or not someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus really is one of God's people. And we see in our passage for this morning, he uses this basic principle. Kids resemble their parents. Being part of a family shapes you. If you're raised by certain parents, it will show in the way that you live, in the things that you love, in the way that you talk and act. If you remember last week at the beginning of 1 John 3, the very beginning of verse 1, the apostle told us that in his great love, God the Father has made us his children through Christ. Remember we read there, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And in our passage for this morning, John is going to tell us how we can discern whether or not someone else is really a child of God. So if you have your Bible open, again, we don't have the screen uh, functioning today, so I think you'll be particularly helped if you're able to to follow along uh, in your Bible. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, at the beginning of verse 10, uh, John tells us, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are are the children of the devil. He is going to help us figure out who belongs to who. Everyone in this church split claimed to be God's child. Right? No one said, hey, just to be clear, I'm I'm a child of the devil. And so here John wants to tell us, how can we figure out which person goes with which family? John's going to say, don't just listen to what they claim. No, look for the family resemblance. Look to their life. Kids reflect their parents. So that's where we're going today. How can we distinguish those people for whom 1 John 3.1 is true, right, those who really are children of God, from those who might just claim to be part of the family, while really they're strangers and outsiders? Last week we considered John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And we said that that passage in our passage for this morning, 
so verses 4 to 10 in chapter 3, are really one argument. It was just too much to cover in one sermon. John has one big point that he's trying to make. John is trying to show us that those who belong to God, those who really are God's children, will walk in righteousness. That's his point. And in order to demonstrate that point, we said last week that John wants to show us three things. Something that's happened in the past, something that's true now, and something that's going to happen in the future. Last Sunday, we thought about the last two things on that list. We thought about what's true now. John says, behold, the manner of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of God. And he says, and so we are now. Right, right now, we are the children of God. We also saw what will happen in the future. John reminds us that Jesus is going to return. And so today, uh, we're going to think about what God has done in the past. So that's what we're going to cover this morning. And I'd like to see particularly two things. What's happened in the past and what that means for us today, particularly as we think through uh, what John wants us to see in terms of our personal holiness and righteousness. So what happened in the past and what that means for us today. So starting with what happened in the past, we see that in our passage addressed in two places. So if you look in your Bible in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, we read this. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then if you look down at the second half of verse 8, John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So John's talking about an appearance. There in verse 5, he appeared. There in verse 8, the Son of God appeared. Now, if you remember last week, John told us that Jesus is going to appear. He is going to return from heaven to judge the world and to usher in the eternal state of new heavens and new earth. That's not what he's talking about here in verses 5 to 8. Now, instead of the future tense, he will appear, we're talking in the past tense. He has appeared. John is talking about a time in the past. He's talking about the first appearance of Jesus, his first advent. Jesus has already appeared roughly 2,000 years ago. The Son of God took on human flesh. He was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. So John tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, appeared 2,000 years ago. And he wants to talk to us about why he appeared he gives us the reason there in verse 8. He says, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible tells us that this world is in rebellion against God, that human beings suffer under the tyranny of Satan. Satan has a kind of provisional control in this world. So John's going to tell us a bit later in this same letter, in John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right? Satan has some provisional, limited power over all the world. And because of our sin, we are naturally his loyal subjects. Even if we don't know it, we instinctively live according to the rules and expectations of his kingdom. We are his children. Other parts of Scripture were described as his slaves, his captives, his victims. And so John tells us that Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, and his mission was to destroy the devil's work. Quietly, the Son of God entered the world. 
As it were, he parachuted in behind enemy lines, into enemy-controlled territory, in order to begin the work of bringing down the devil's tyrannical regime, to begin the work of restoring the world to its rightful sovereign. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so we should ask, what are those works? What are the works of the evil one? If you look at the broad sweep of scripture, John doesn't tell us specifically here, but I think you can pull out three categories, kind of three things that characterize the works of the devil, three things that Satan is trying to accomplish, three tools in his tool belt that he seems to keep coming back to over and over again. First, there is physical suffering. Satan brought physical suffering into the world when he tempted Adam and Eve to sin. When sin entered the world, so did death and pain and suffering. So in that sense, he is a cause of all of the suffering in the world. But we also see in scripture that he seems to directly cause suffering at times. So you think about the example of Job, right, where Satan inflicts physical pain and even death on him and his family. First Peter 5 tells us the devil persecutes God's children and causes suffering. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that Satan is a murderer. In Revelation 2.10, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, the devil is about to throw some of them into prison. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we read about suffering people there. They're described as those the devil had oppressed with sickness. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus encounters a woman who is sick. She's unable to stand up straight. And he refers to her as a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years. Right, we can conclude that one of the works of the devil is things that destroy human life. Things that create physical suffering and misery. Satan is at work, not only in the physical realm, but also in the realm of ideas and beliefs. That's the second work of the evil one. The devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. Again, remember back in John chapter 8, in verse 44, Jesus said this about the evil one. He says, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan speaks in lies and half-truths. He even twists scripture to his own purposes. Remember in the Gospels how we read that he, he actually tried to use the Bible to tempt the Lord Jesus to sin. He is the master, the undisputed king of the lie. Right in Revelation 12, 9, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. His M.O. is the lie. He works through deceit. He sows confusion and falsehood. Well, where do we see that functioning in our world? Well, we see it in the false religions that teach false ways to know God. We see diabolical fingerprints on the widespread assumption nowadays that there is no truth, that everything is relative, that I am free to make up my own version of right and wrong. The devil stands behind those ways that we think and even the things we think we know. It's not just physical suffering and intellectual deception. The, the work of Satan also includes enticement to sin, moral failure, lawlessness. 
That's the third thing. Satan loves sin. If you look at our passage for this morning, there in the middle of verse 8, John tells us that he's been sinning from the beginning. His work, his pleasure is to ensnare and entrap people in sin. The devil hates God, and so he loves the things that God hates. He loves it when people rebel against God and throw off his authority. He loves the spiritual death that comes to people when they sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the evil one planting the the tragic seed of deceit with Adam and Eve. Can you really trust God? Did, Did he really say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? Will there really be consequences for disobeying him? You put those three things together and you have some sense of what it means that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the evil one. Right? Think, think for a moment about how your life is made worse by those three things, those three things that are the devil's work. Think about the way you are shaped by the reality of physical suffering and even death, whether that's pain that you experience now, uh, the pain and suffering of a loved one, or the certain and inevitable reality that pain and suffering and death come to every person eventually. Think about the ways that ever-present dishonesty and deceit make your life more difficult and more confusing. Think about the ways that sin, the sin of others against you, the ways that you're tempted to sin personally. Think about the ways it creates trouble and sadness every day. Think about the way your sin alienates you from God and from others. Right, if you feel the weight of all of that, if you feel just how unpleasant life is under Satan's tyranny, right, even though it's so normal to us, we barely even notice anymore, right, if you stop to think for a second, then you're ready to hear the absurdly good news that the Son of God came. The reason why Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago was to destroy all those works of the devil. Jesus came to undo Satan's physical torment of people, right? In his ministry, Jesus went around healing people of all their sicknesses and diseases. Are you blind? Jesus will give you sight. Are you deaf? Jesus would give you hearing. Are you paralyzed? Jesus would make you jump for joy. Are you dead? Jesus will bring you back to life. All of that was a sign It was meant to be a flashing light, letting you know the tide is turning. The curse is being rolled back. The effects of the devil's work are being undone. Those healings were an indication that there would one day finally be a victory over all suffering and all death. Jesus came to destroy the lies and the deceit of the evil one. In John chapter 8, Jesus told the people that if they would remain in his word, if they would be his disciples, in John 8, 32, he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from who? Free from the lies of the evil one. The devil imprisons with deception. Jesus liberates with the truth. Truth was the cornerstone of Jesus' ministry. 
How many times did he begin a teaching by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he declared, I am the truth. In 1 John chapter 2, we saw that the apostle describes Jesus as the true light. Jesus came not to deceive us, not to destroy us, but to shine as a light in the darkness so that we might be freed by his truth. And Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil in our sin. I think this is the main thing that John wants to talk about in our passage for this morning. The way that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, particularly in the sin of his people. So we see in verse 5, right? You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. The devil tempts to sin. The devil ensnares with sin. The devil delights in sin. Jesus, according to verse 5, came to take it away. John reminds us there is no sin in him. His mission was to free us from the penalty and the power of sin. So through his incarnation, his appearance 2,000 years ago in the flesh, through his sinless life, and his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection in glory, Jesus takes away the sin of anyone who would believe in him. Satan is a liar. So Jesus endured the lies of wicked men so that we could know the truth. Satan loves sin. So sinless Jesus became sin for us on the cross so that we could be free. Satan loves death. And so Jesus rose from the dead in victory over the grave, securing eternal life in a world made new for all of his people. Friends, that's the good news. Jesus came to destroy all the works of the evil one. He died so that our sins could be forgiven. He rose from the dead so that we could live under the rule of a good and gracious king rather than continue to live under the cruel tyranny of the evil one. So friend, if you haven't come to Jesus in faith, but if you feel something in your heart that longs to be free from all of this, free from this suffering and deceit and sin, if you feel something in your heart that longs to be free from the, the cruel oppression of a jailer in order to follow after your true king, you can do that today. You don't have to clean up your act before you come to him. You don't have to figure out how to get yourself free from the devil's clutches. All you have to do is receive Jesus' free offer of forgiveness and new life. You simply have to switch your allegiance from the one who seeks your harm to the one that seeks your good, from the one that hates you to the one that loves you. If you have questions about what that looks like, I'd, I'd urge you to talk to someone about it. You could talk to the person who invited you today. You can make plans to attend the Christianity Explored class. Kids, if you have questions about it, talk to your parents this afternoon. You can talk to anybody that you've seen up here this morning. We would be delighted to talk to you more about the good news that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to destroy and take away sin. That's our first point, what happened in the past Let's turn now to see what John tells us about what that means for us today. 
It's not too hard to put together what John is driving at. Right? If, you, if you sort of pull out all the data that we see in this passage, we can group John's teaching really under kind of two headings. First, John talks about righteousness, and he talks about freedom from sin. So again, you'll be helped if you look at your Bible here. There at the end of verse 5, we see that in him, that is in Jesus, there is no sin. At the beginning of verse 6, John says that no one who abides in him, that is remains in Jesus, keeps on sinning. In verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, that is Jesus, is righteous. In verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So Jesus is righteous, John tells us. Whoever practices righteousness, whoever's life is characterized by the doing of things that please the Lord, things that are right and true and good and holy, that person, John says, is righteous because Jesus is, there in verse 7. If we abide in Jesus, if we are remaining in him, trusting in him, looking to him as our king, there in verse 6, John says, we can't, it's impossible that we would just keep on sinning. There in verse 9, anyone born of God, anyone who's been brought into God's family, anyone uh, who's had that seed of God's life planted in him, as he says there, anyone for whom verse 1 is true, that God has made them a child of God, they cannot, that person cannot, John says in verse 9, go on sinning. They simply won't. Right, so that's sort of one idea. Jesus is righteous. Anyone with him will practice righteousness. Look at the, the rest of the data in our passage, the second kind of cluster of ideas. There in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sin, John says in verse 4, also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness is a broad category. It just reflects everything that is opposed to God and his ways. To practice sin is to live in rebellion against God just like the devil is in rebellion against God. There in verse 6, if you keep on sinning, you show that you've never seen Jesus and you don't know him. In verse 9, if you make a practice of sinning, you are of the devil. Right. So when you hold those two sort of buckets of information next to each other, a picture emerges that's really summed up there in verse 10. John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? How do you know which kid belongs to the Jones family? Well, they, they look and they act like Mike and Heidi. How do you know which child belongs to God and which child belongs to the evil one? Which family do they act like? Jesus is righteous. The devil is a murderer and a sinner. Which family do you resemble? Spiritually speaking, the world is caught up in a battle between two opposite but not equal kingdoms. On the one hand, you have the realm of the evil one, the devil, the sinner from the beginning. And on the other hand, you have the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, there is no sin, according to verse 5. He is righteous, according to verse 7. 
Now, each of these two kingdoms, they have their loyal subjects. Or again, to change the image now to fit verse 9 and 10, each one of these kingdoms is like a family with its children. God has his children. The devil has his children. And to be clear, there is no middle ground. In this family feud, there is no Switzerland. There's no gray area. When we're talking about God and his righteousness on one hand and the devil and his wickedness on the other, this is not a preference matter. This is not, I like one kind of ice cream more than the other. It's not a taste that wavers back and forth on any given day. This is a case of cosmic family allegiance. This is why Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote that there can't be any fellowship between light and darkness. The point that John's been driving to in this whole passage is this. You can tell the difference between the subjects of the two kingdoms. You can tell the difference between the children of the two families based on what they love and what they do. Generally speaking, children reflect their parents' image. There is such a thing as family resemblance. The culture of a family leaves its imprint on a child in the food that they like, in the way that they talk, in the posture they take towards the world. And that means that the children of God, spiritually speaking, are going to look like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect son. He is the perfect, sinless, older brother to God's people. And the work that God is doing in his family is taking all of us, right, all of these children that he's, in his great love, according to verse 1, brought into his family, given us the right to be called his children, what God is doing is taking us and conforming us over time to the image of his perfect son, the one who is righteous, the one in whom there is no sin. Listen carefully to what Paul says in Romans 8, 29. So it's not on the screen behind me. I'll I'll read it slowly so you can follow along. Romans 8, 29. This is really important. So speaking about God the Father... He says, for those who he foreknew, he, that is God the Father, also predestined. Predestined to what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he, that is the Son, the Lord Jesus, might be the firstborn, the older brother, among many brothers, Paul says. Christian, if you were to plot a chart from This moment in time, extending off into eternity, what you'll see is that your future is heading inexorably towards conformity to the character and holiness and image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's what your future holds. That's what God's doing in your life, making you look more and more like Jesus. Until that day when you see him as he is, as we thought about last week, And the work is finished and you are transformed. That's what God is doing. Making us holy like Jesus. That's the family likeness. You can spot a McKinley kid running around Sterling Park Baptist Church because they've got the Eagles jersey on. What John's saying is you can spot a child of God because they'll be wearing personal holiness. They'll be wearing something of the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
On one hand, the children of God are abiding in him, living in righteousness. They are not making a practice of sinning. Right there in verse 9, we read, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Right? If you've been born of God, if his spirit has caused you to come to life, spiritually speaking, if you've been given eyes to see and a desire to leave behind the devil for life as a child of God, John says, then you can't keep on sinning. It's impossible. That's not what God does with his children. Now, listen closely. We'll think a little bit more about this in a bit. This is not to say that we're perfect. It is not to say that true Christians never commit sins, even terrible sins. John is very clear about this. In chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, right, we thought about this last week. John says we will not be perfectly sinless until Jesus returns, until we see him as he really is. Until then, sin will be a reality in our lives. He's not saying that the children of God are perfect. Instead, he's saying that a child of God cannot continue on in their sin. They do not make peace with it. They do not settle down with it. They do not make it their lifestyle. And if, if they begin to, one of the things that our loving Heavenly Father does for his children, according to the book of Hebrews, is, is discipline us, is to actually make sin that's beginning to taste sweet to us, to make it taste bitter, to make it painful and unpleasant. Christians struggle with sin. Sometimes they struggle mightily with besetting sins. That struggle at any given moment might not look like it's going very well. That struggle might last, but it can't be our lifestyle. It can't be our fundamental truth. It can't be what characterizes us. John says there we cannot keep on sinning because God's seed abides in us. The principle of God's life that's been planted in us by the Holy Spirit using God's word, it, it can't not grow. It can't not Push out that practice of sinning. That seed, that new birth, that family blood that courses through our veins now makes war on sin. And so one of God's children can never make peace with it. One of God's children can never keep on sinning as a practice. For the children of the devil, however, for those still under his rule, still loyal to his rebellion against God, even if they wouldn't be consciously aware that that's what they're doing, that they're siding with him, John says, for those people, sin is natural. It's the air that they breathe. It's the water they swim in. Sin is the pattern and shape of his or her life. This person never stops to think about God, about what God would have them do, how God feels about their actions. They don't care about what he wants. In that way, they are lawless. In that sense, they do whatever seems right to them. Sleep with whomever, eat and drink whatever and however much they want. Spend their time and their money however they'd like. They love what they want. They love however they want. Right? Even when they do good, it's not out of love for the true God who is, but for some other lesser selfish reason. Right? In the context of 1 John, 
The point is that these false teachers who've gone out from the church, they've shown their true colors. Their love of sin, their lack of concern for righteousness, they demonstrated by their actions which family they belong to. They are not God's children. And the people left behind at the church shouldn't follow them or admire them and shouldn't even marvel at the fact that they went out. That's the, the point, I think, in the, in the context of John's letter. For those of us who claim to be followers of Christ now, for those of us who consider ourselves part of God's family now, it does seem that there's two ways that this ancient text written to an ancient audience can help us in our Monday mornings. So just two things I want to point out, two ways this can help shape us, and this will be where we conclude this morning. First, I think what John's talking about here can help guard us against presumption. It's possible to claim to be a Christian. It's possible even to intend to be a Christian. It's possible even to think that you're a Christian and not actually be one. That's the situation that John's addressing. False professors, right? People who profess faith in Christ, people who claim to be God's children, but in fact, they are not. They are fakes who went out from the church. And he warns us here that if we have settled into sin in our lives, if you get up every morning and you pull on the jersey of pride and selfishness and greed, if all, if all of your hats are porn and fornication and anger and drunkenness, you should ask the question whether or not God's seed really abides in you. You should ask, am I really a child of God, given the way that I live? Now, my fear is that the people who need this warning the least will be the ones who take it most seriously. And the ones who need to hear it most have already checked out. So listen, John is not saying that the presence of sin in our lives is evidence that we are not God's children. So my fear is that the devil might use the truth of this passage to assault some of you that have sensitive consciences, some of you who feel your sin very deeply. It is good to hate your sin. It is good to mourn your sin. It is not good to despair over your sin because Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one, including the guilt and the shame of sin. John is clear that if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. Right? Chapter 1, verse 10. He is clear that God has provided a wonderful solution to our sin problem. 1 John 1, 9. If we, are, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. When we sin, chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Chapter 2, verse 2, he's made a propitiation for our sin. So the point of our passage for this morning is not that sin somehow puts you outside of the love of God. Right? The point isn't that your sin disqualifies you from membership in God's family. The point isn't that God has no remedy for our sin sickness. Now, the point is, what John is saying here is that if sin characterizes your life, if it's the headline, 
And if you're not doing anything about it besides presuming on God's grace, banking on his forgiveness, well, John's saying you may well not be one of his children. And so each one of us should look honestly at our lives and ask, which family do I resemble? In the things that I love, Lord willing, we'll think about that next week. In the things that I do, in the things that I think, in the things that I say. Friends, do not presume on God's grace. John never says that merely saying that you're a Christian or even intending to be a Christian is evidence that you are a child of God. The grace that saves us, the grace that makes us God's child, it's the same grace that makes us hate our sin and leads us to be more holy. So that's the first thing. I think we have a warning against presumption. The second thing is that this passage can help to stoke our love for righteousness, our love for holiness. Until we see Jesus as he is, until we are finally completely like him, we will struggle with indwelling sin. There is still an enemy within us. If you want to think more about this, go read Romans 7 today. Right? Within us, there is a part of us, the flesh, Paul calls it, that is a rebel to the cause of Christ. We still have some of our old instincts. We have some of our old tastes. We have some of our old affinities. And the nature of that indwelling sin in us is that it makes life outside the family of God somehow still seem in some way perhaps attractive, right? Remember the Israelites freed by God's miraculous grace from slavery in Egypt? Then as soon as things got hard, they romanticized what life was like in captivity, how their, their pots were full of food, right? It's possible as a Christian to remember the fleeting pleasures of sin, Right, that, that candy-coated rat poison that you used to eat when you were the devil's subject. It's possible to get your wires crossed so that you begin to think that godliness is a heavy burden. And sin, oh, that's where you're going to find real life. But here John reminds us that when we're brought into God's family, we receive the most wonderful kind of love. Right? Remember in verse 1, what kind of love? Is this? What planet is this love from that the Father would make us his children? John reminds us that God wants to bless you. He wants to give you true life now and for all eternity. The devil wants to deceive you and harm you and kill you. Christian, it is so much better to be part of God's family. How wonderful to be adopted by the best, the kindest, the most loving, most lovely, most beautiful father imaginable. How great that you get to be part of this family. Christian righteousness is so much better than sin. Even if sin has its fleeting pleasures. Even if holiness sometimes feels like a kind of death. Our destiny is one day to finally be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we purify ourselves now, as John said in verse 3. We hate sin. We delight in the ways of our new family. You can tell which parents a child belongs to by the family resemblance. And we get to be part of the best family. So now as we come to the table, we come as God's children, 
This is one of the great privileges that we have as members of God's household, as members of his family. This is what it looks like to be one of the children of God. We come to the family dinner table. We gather to share a meal with the Lord Jesus, our older brother. And we come as only God's children can come in gratitude for Christ's sacrifice, with the burden of sin lifted off our shoulders, with hearts full of songs and praise for our Heavenly Father and the great love that He's shown to us. And so as God's children, let's pray now and then come together to His table. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we delight in the privilege of being your children. We delight in the love that you have shown us in sending your Son to destroy all the works of the devil. Lord Jesus, we hail you as our King, as our older brother, as the one who laid down his life, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that we could be released from captivity we could be called children of God. Holy Spirit, would you be with us now? We pray that you would uh, convict us of sin. If there's anyone in this room who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and as their King, Spirit, would you right now draw them in love to Christ in faith? If there's anyone who's deceived, whose life is characterized by sin, who believes themselves to be one of God's children, when in fact they're not, Spirit, would you open their eyes, cause them to hate their sin, cause them to come to Christ in faith? Would you help us, those of us who are God's children, to rejoice in that, to delight in righteousness, to, to hate our sin? Would you conform us more and more to the image of Christ until that day when we see him as he is? And we pray in his name. Amen.